We're in Exodus uh, chapter 17 this morning, and believe it or not, we're going we're gonna to pray again. And I know you're sitting here thinking, wow, we've been praying a bunch this service. Well, <laughs> that's okay, and that's a good thing to do. And I want you to know that um, I have nothing to say, nothing to teach, nothing to offer uh, if the Lord does not provide it, if it is not the Lord's truth. And, and so um, I need to pray right now and ask for the Lord's assistance as we Uh, go through this text. So would you just bow with me quickly here? Father, this is your word and we thank you for it. We thank you that you are not a God that is uh, secretive and far off and far removed and unknown to us, but you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in your word, in real history, through real people's lives, and that you have preserved it so that we could know you and know your goodness to us. Uh, Father, help me now to preach and proclaim boldly the truth of your word, and whatever God is, is, is not from you and not of your spirit, then, Lord, I pray that it would just fall on deaf ears and be forgotten. Uh, so help us now, Lord. We want to learn. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Second Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed, that is inspired. It is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what it says, and we believe that. We teach that as, as a church. Some passages, however, seem to speak to maybe smaller segments uh, of us than, than maybe other passages. And this morning's passage is kind of one of those. Chapter 17 and 18 of Exodus really speak to leaders. Uh, to those of you who find yourself in some leadership capacity, uh, and, and specifically, it speaks to leaders who, like Moses in this particular instance, find themselves in their leadership in in sort of a season of crisis. In a season of crisis. Chapter 17 is about a leadership crisis that Moses experiences and then how the Lord encourages and guides him through that. And then chapter 18 is really, uh, again, about Moses and, and another crisis where God corrects him about some things that he does wrong. So this morning we're going to look at the first half about how God encourages and takes Moses through, uh, particularly through a leadership crisis. Now, even though I've said at the beginning here that, that not everyone in the room maybe feels like they're a leader, if you think long and hard enough about it uh, and you think about your life, most of us really are in some capacity a leader. Uh, there's a few pastors in the room. There's probably a principal and a school teacher in the room. There are business owners administrators, maybe you're a team leader at work, uh, camp counselor, or parents. If you think about it, over, over time here, you'll see that you either are presently or will be at someday in some capacity uh, of leadership. And I want you to hear this. This is kind of the bullet of the message this morning. Every leader, every leader who is worth their salt and actually leading people forward Every leader will get to a point of crisis. Every leader will get to a point of crisis. And by that, I mean not just that they're leading people through difficulty, but I mean that their specific leadership position itself will be challenged. And they will get to a point of leadership crisis. And what we see this morning in this particular text is how we as leaders go through those times. And how the Lord takes us through those times. So when I say crisis, I'm not just talking about you're, you know, a hard time in general, but I'm talking about where the leader themselves comes to a point of, can I lead through this? Is, is my position intact? Is this what God has for me? Do other people respond to, to my leadership? 
Uh, it might be in, in your, your situation, it may be your kids rejecting your authority and pushing back and saying, I don't respect you and I don't want to hear anything from you. Uh, it might be the, the guys in, in your platoon or, or in the area that, that you manage in the military uh, that seem to resent you. It may be your employees just kind of grumbling or, or whatever. I think every leader will get to a point of crisis in their leadership. And we need some advice on how we go through that. I want to give you some statistics here. There was a, a study that was done recently by uh, the Harvard Kennedy School Center for Public Leadership. And they reported that public opinion on leaders is at an all-time low. In fact, when interviewed, 68% of Americans said that we have a leadership crisis. That's public opinion on leadership. Uh, there was a book that I've cited in your handout this morning called The Making of a Leader by Bobby Clinton. And he reports that only 30% of leaders will actually finish well. Uh, and you'll have to read the book to see what he means by that. But that's particularly startling. And this is not any different in, in the ministry or among, among pastors or leaders in churches. Uh, in the ministry, listen to this statistic. This blew my mind. 1,400 pastors leave the ministry each month due to stress, disillusionment, or forced termination. 1,400 a month. In the Southern Baptist Convention alone, 98 pastors are terminated monthly. Uh, And that is absolutely astounding to me. These aren't just statistics of our contemporary culture, but we find this as we go through the scriptures as well. And I want to give you some examples. King David. uh, We saw sort of a humorous video this morning about several leaders in uh, in the scriptures. But King David himself was challenged by his own son, Absalom. And Absalom took over the throne. And King David was forced out. And he was also betrayed by his trusted advisor, Ahithophel. Uh, even, Even such great leaders in... In church history, such as Charles Spurgeon, who is known to us as the Prince of Preachers. That's his reputation today, the Prince of Preachers. Uh, In his day, he was absolutely maligned in the local papers for his messages. I can't even imagine, you know, the newspaper covering local messages. You know, can you imagine the news miners saying, oh, yeah, Pastor Eric really bombed this morning. Uh, I I mean, I can imagine that report if they were going to do it, but... uh, But uh, they don't. And this kind of criticism, public criticism that he received, uh, caused him to sink into a very deep depression. Uh, His wife handled it differently. Um, She cut out all the newspaper clippings and kept the journal. And I think she'd be a dangerous person to run into in a dark alley. (laughs) Um, Martin Luther, someone that we herald as sort of a champion of the Reformation, right? Right. We forget, though, that he was excommunicated by the church of the day that he was challenging and trying to reform. Uh, They declared him to be an outlaw and a heretic. They banned his writing. And they actually, get this, the church of the day made it legal for anybody to kill him. The church. This is how we treat our, our leaders. President Lincoln, we know, was hated by at least half the country. Right? Most popular, one of the most popular presidents of all time, if not the most popular, uh, but was hated in his day. And Jesus himself, the greatest leader of all time, with the largest and most enduring following in the history of the world, a man who never did a single thing wrong, uh, was killed by those he came to save. Uh, 
such as the realm of those who choose to lead. That's what you can expect. I, I believe every leader who is worth their salt, who is genuinely leading, who is out in front and not just, you know, tour director on the ship, but really leading people, uh, we'll get to a point of crisis. And the question is, how we go through it? How do we go through it? A very wise man once told me that leaders are not always popular. And that is the truth. That is the truth. And if you are uh, aspiring to a leadership role, and you're doing so because uh, you're drawn to the popularity of it, I want to tell you, go the other way. <laughs> go the other way. Because it'll bite you. It'll bite you. What we find here, we pick up in chapter 17, we find that Moses is uh, experiencing particularly a leadership crisis. Israel is revolting, rejecting him. There's a bit of a mutiny on hands here. Uh, in chapter 17, verse 1, the whole Israelite community set down from the desert, excuse me, set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled. Keep that word in mind here. They quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? I love these snarky questions from Israel, right? And here they are again, just complaining. And I want to show you something here. What we actually find is that Israel uh, puts Moses on trial. And I'm not overstating this. When we look at the text at first glance, we might kind of read it and think, yeah, yeah, Israel's just grumbling again, you know, sort of like kids in the car on a long road trip. You're touching me. Stay on your side. It's my turn, you know, whatever. And, and so at first glance, as we read it, we think, oh, yeah, they're just kind of grumbling here. Uh, but actually, the word that is that is used here, the word for quarreled, which I tried to draw your attention to in verse two there, the word, the Hebrew word for quarreled is rib, R-I-B, looks like rib, pronounced rib. Uh, and it is actually quite an intense word uh, in the scriptures. It carries a lot more weight than uh, the other word that's used for grumbling there, which in the Hebrew is lun. And it, it's almost an onomatopoetic word. So, you know, you can imagine lun, 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 kind of the grumbling, you know. But but reeb, in contrast to that, is actually a legal word. Uh, it's, it's, it's pulled right out of the courtroom. And, and it's basically what we're, we're being told here is it is as though Israel is accusing uh, Moses. They are charging him. They're indicting him. They're prosecuting him. It's not just a gentle complaint in the car. They're after him. They are challenging him. They're, they've got him in the, in the uh, defense seat here. He's having to defend himself, so to speak. Uh, there's a whole um, section of biblical literature called Reeb literature, which is something that I learned this week. Uh, and in a good example of it is in Micah chapter 6, or, uh, verses 1 through 5. And, and there's an example there, and it, it, it's pulled right out of a courtroom kind of scene, actually, where God is, in that case, prosecuting Israel and calling witnesses against them, so to speak. And he's acting as judge and jury against their actions. So all that to say that this, this text here is not like there's just this little rumblings and people are kind of thirsty. Moses is in a full-blown mutiny, a leadership 
crisis. They're challenging his seat. And we're told that the place where this occurs here, Rephidium, is later on renamed Mariba and Massah. That root word, rib, right there in the new name, Mariba and Massah. And it carries with it this civil courtroom kind of conflict that occurred there. The second thing we're seeing is not only that they put Moses on trial here, but they tested God. They tested God. And that phrase is almost an oxymoron. Israel tested God. And this inappropriate twist and inversion of things. We've been talking over the past couple of weeks about how God devised a series of tests for Israel so that they might learn to trust him. He would bring them to the end of themselves to points of complete dependence and then God would intervene and they would learn that he is a God that is for them and they would see his provision and their trust and their relationship in, in him would develop. But in this case, they invert things and they turn around and they want to test God. Walt Kaiser has said about this text, instead of submitting to the test that God was conducting for them, Israel began to test the Lord. And inverting the curriculum process here, instead of being the students, they thought they were the teachers. Um, When we do this, and we do do this in our lives, we set up hoops for God to jump through, and we want him to meet our criteria of things. When we do that, we're saying that we want God to answer to us. We're saying that he is accountable to us. And in that instance, we're saying that sovereignty passes to us. And we're inverting things as they are. Uh, There's only one place in all of scripture where God says to test me. Can you think of it? Only one place. It's actually in Malachi. In chapter 3, verse 10. And it says this. It's about giving. And God says... Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. It is the only place in all of the scriptures that God says you have permission to test me in something. And unfortunately, I think we test God in everything but that. We're willing to trust or test God in everything. But the one instance where he said, do test me in this. The renaming here of Rephidium, this place where all of this stuff occurs. The renaming of Rephidium here captures both the trial of Moses, uh, the Meribah, and the testing of God, Massah, which is the other name. And what's interesting to me is that throughout the scriptures, we see instances where God renames either an individual or a place or something of the sort. And it's usually an example of, of, a, of a good thing that happened or a place where we see the faithfulness of God. In this instance, it's a, it's a time where we see the failing of God's people. And it's as though by renaming it, God sort of puts this caution tape around it and says, don't do this again. And actually, he'll come back to it and we'll come back to it later on. What we see here, uh, what we learn out of this is that Moses is afraid. Uh, and rightfully so. And you don't have to be a language buff or a Hebrew scholar to discern this. And I am not a Hebrew scholar. I have to study hard, those that are much smarter than me, uh, to learn some of these things. Uh, but what we see here is that the conflict is severe because Moses is afraid. Uh, in fact, when he goes to God in verse 4 in prayer, he says this, they are almost ready to stone me. 
So we can see clearly that Moses' approval rating is down. Uh, This is a serious crisis of leadership. He's genuinely afraid and for good reason. And that brings us to the second part of the message. God gives Moses five steps to survive this crisis. Uh, now, I have to preface the next section of this message by uh, by saying this. Um, I'm not the kind of preacher who, 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 you know, preaches five steps to, you know, an easier life, three steps to a whole new you, these, these kinds of things. And if you, if you, I, I'm pretty distrustful of anything that's packaged that neatly because life is complex, isn't it? And, and anybody who's sort of putting something out quite that neat and tidy i mean it's either in the in the magazine rack in a grocery aisle or they have not considered the complexity of my issues Uh, i love what hl minkin says he's got a great quote about this he says to every complex problem there is a simple and a clear answer that's wrong (laughs) and that resonates with me Uh, and so I, i i'm not i'm not trying to tell you that everything is this simple uh but as i look at the text here God basically tells Moses five specific things to do. And what I want to do is just lay those out in front of us and see how Moses takes uh, uh, kind of follows through on those and, and where they take him so that we can learn from them. I also caution you, don't turn this into a formula. Uh, we'll, we'll lay these out, we'll learn from them, we'll take the principles that we can, and, and we'll see how, how we as leaders, when we find ourselves in similar points of crisis, uh, can go through them, hopefully. Um, but be careful not to turn this into a formula. Look at verse 4. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Does that sound like your workplace? Have you ever experienced that? Uh, all of the teachers in the room said, Yes. <laughs> They're ready to stone me. The Lord answers Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you strike the Nile with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now let me observe at the outset here that um, Moses does something brilliant on his own instinct, not something he was directed to do necessarily by the Lord, but on his own instinct, he does maybe the very best thing that any leader who finds himself in a point of crisis can do. And that is this. He goes to the Lord, right? He brings this complaint to the Lord. He brings his concern to the Lord who alone knows all things and knows what is just and unjust. The omnipotent God who is knowledgeable of all things and yet willing to hear from us. Moses goes to the Lord and that's right. Uh, and I ran across this quote by PT Forsyth a couple of weeks ago, which I think is very good. It says this, we are after all made for God by God. So why wouldn't we pray? It's our native tongue and our first language. Isn't that good? Prayer, our native tongue and our first language when we hit crises in our life, to go to the Lord and bring our concerns to him. So Moses does that right out of the gates, and that's right. But then here's the things, the five specific things that God gives Moses to do. And the first is this, go ahead of the people, which I'm going to sort of paraphrase. Moses, continue to lead. Continue to lead. 
Um, I don't think Moses is just trying, or God is just trying to pull Moses out of sort of the skirmish here and just to give him a break. I don't, I don't think he's doing it. I don't think he's saying, come over here. This is the safe zone. Uh, I do think what God is doing is he's pulling Moses out of this cacophony of voices around him that are contrary to God's calling on this man's life and for these people. He's pulling him out of the noise of those who don't have any understanding of what God is doing. Uh, and I think God does not want Moses' leadership to def- be defined by the complaints and the grumbling uh, of the people. He, Moses' job is not to take a polling and get a sample and then do what the people want. And if that were the case, they'd still be back in Egypt, right? Around pots of meat, dead. Because that's what they were complained about a couple weeks ago, saying that would have been better. And so God doesn't want Moses listening to all of that. He wants him listening to himself. God wants Moses to hear his voice and follow his direction, not just kowtow to popular opinion or approval. Um, we've probably all heard sort of the humorous adage that says, there, there they go. I must hasten after them, for I am their leader. <laughs> Have you heard that before? And that may be the way that uh, leadership is done a lot, especially in our country. It's not what God has for Moses. Moses has been commissioned by God on a specific task, and he's to follow it out here. Uh, there's an incredible tension for any good leader, too. My dad used to say, Eric, you've got to fly ahead of your plane, which I, somehow that's a good picture for me. You've got to be out in front a little bit. You've got to know what's ahead. You've got to be sort of carving the new territory. But you can't be so far out in front that you, you, lose, you lose touch. Otherwise, you're just out there alone, right? Neither can you be so far back that you're just a passenger on the same plane. A leader's got to fly ahead of his plane. And he's got to have that tension of being ahead, but, but bringing along those who, who are following as well. And so God says, go ahead of the people. And I think what he's saying is, you continue to lead and you listen to my voice. Secondly, he says, take the elders with you. And from that, I take that we need to share leadership. Good, godly, wise leadership is shared leadership. Um, We all know the expression that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. We all know churches and corporations and countries and different organizations where there is a solitary and a lone leader and he is destined for a fall. Either by overwork or strain or attack or lack of wisdom or any number of things. The consistent pattern of leadership, of godly leadership that we see in the scriptures is a plurality of leaders. Uh, it's like the stock market. Uh, you have one single stock and you put all your bets in that. It's only a matter of time before it lets you down. You hedge your bets with mutual funds, says any good investor, right? And there's wisdom in a plurality of leaders as well. Uh, we see it here in Exodus 17. We're going to see it even more in Exodus 18, where uh, Moses is father-in-law comes to town Jethro and he basically challenges Moses and says and you can almost imagine the finger wagging Moses what you're doing is not good because he has taken too much upon himself so next week Moses gets challenged this week he he gets a bit of encouragement but what we see throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament here and then in the New Testament we see we see Paul instructing a plurality of leadership uh, for the, in the pastoral epistles of Timothy and Titus, they were to finish what, what Paul started by setting up elders, a plurality of leaders. We see it in Acts chapter 15, when there was an important issue for the church to decide on. 
uh, and James, who was sort of the prominent pastor of the time, the pastor of the big church in town, the Jerusalem church. He called in for the elders to come from all over the place. He called Paul and Barnabas off of the field for advice so that they would make a godly decision and they made it corporately together. Uh, We see the Apostle Paul again in Acts chapter 20 before he goes off to Jerusalem, which he thought he would run into, or off to Rome, where he thought he would run into some legal difficulties, calling the elders together to pray for him. Godly leadership is shared leadership. The lone and solitary leader is destined for a fall. Um, a couple months ago, I talked to you that uh, about uh, sort of the illustration of geese flying in formation. Do you remember this, those of you that were here? It's really stuck in my head. We learn so much from geese, actually, just the way that they fly in formation. That lewd, that, that, that lewd, <laughs> that's not the word I was looking for. <laughs> that lead goose. <laughs> See how it happens? Yeah. He's taking all the buffeting on the front edge of, of that, that, uh, that wedge that's going through the air. And he will tire first. And he will have to drop to the back and another one will move forward in formation. And so they preserve their strength in that way. But also in flying in formation, as they flap their wings, one creates lift for the one behind them. And geese flying in formation have a 71% greater efficiency in flying by being in formation. And not only that, but when one goose comes to the ground, either because they're injured or shot or whatever happens, two go with it. And they stay with it to protect it. Uh, and, they, and until it returns to health, and when it does, they'll fly back into formation with it. Um, you want a good homework assignment, go to Kramer's Field this afternoon and just watch. Someone uh, asked me a couple weeks ago, too, do you, do you know why one line of that, of that wedge, that formation, is longer than the other? Because there's more geese in it. <laughs> I fell for it too. I, t- twice now I've fallen for that one. Um, biblical leadership is a plurality. It's a plurality. There is some wisdom in, uh, in, a, in a few, in a number of, of leaders. Um, and I, I get this opportunity to uh, really compliment you as a church. And so p- please listen to me. Please listen to my heart here. Um, about 14 years ago, not 14 years ago, it was about 13 years ago, I think, when we were first candidating here, and we were looking at the polity of this church, that is its, its organization, how it organizes itself in a governing way. And I was concerned because I didn't see what I thought to be a very biblical polity. We had deacons, but we didn't have any elders. And if you look at the old bylaws of this particular church, it basically puts the senior pastor as the lone elder, or did. And I was concerned about that. And this this past year, you as a church did a very wise and good thing. Uh, We brought our polity before you and said, we don't think this is the most biblical model. We see that leadership is to be shared among a plurality of elders. And so we now have an elder board and a deacon board comprised of men and women, elder board of men, and a deacon board comprised of men and women who serve together. We have a plurality of leadership. And there is no one solitary leader here. I am blessed to be able to be your primary teacher, but I am not your primary leader. We lead together as a plurality. And you as a church did a very courageous and a wise thing in putting that polity in place. And you did what is very difficult for a church to do, and that is to change. Especially for Baptists. You changed, and you put the scriptures as your guide. And I get to compliment you on that and say, well done. Moving on here. I got to get going. Um, 
take the elders with you. So the next one is take the staff of God. And by that, I, I'm going to sort of recharacterize that as to remember your calling. That's what I see here. Um, when a leader runs into a point of crisis, you've got to go to the Lord in prayer. You've got to have the courage to revisit the calling and the commission that God has put on your life. And you have to be willing to ask that question again. Uh, in chapter 4, we recall that uh, when God was commissioning Moses, he had a staff in his hand. And the Lord says, what's that in your hand? Uh, it's a staff. And the Lord sort of transformed it, so to speak, and said, with that staff, I want you to do these things. And with it, he would do miracle. He would perform miraculous signs that the, that God would perform using that basic instrument, including striking the Nile River, which would turn it to blood. Uh, and so this staff became for Moses a symbol of God's calling and His commissioning. And so I believe what God is doing when He says, "Take your staff," He's He's telling him in a sense, "You're still my man. I, the people are revolting against you, but I have a calling on your life." I have commissioned and equipped you to do this thing, this very big thing. And Moses, you need to get on with it. And so he calls him forward with this staff. When a leader hits a point of crisis, you have to go back to and ask the question, what is it that God has called me to do? We find that King David did the same thing. When Absalom, his son, came over and and, and took over the kingdom and his trusted advisor, Ahithophel, also betrayed him. We find in Psalm chapter 3, the prayers of David. And we see him going back to the Lord and wrestling through these issues with the Lord. In a sense, rehearsing his commissioning and his calling to be king. We see it in the New Testament in Peter. who We saw a funny video about Peter this morning who denies even denying Christ. That was funny. But when he actually did it and he denied Christ, he thought his ministry was over. Or he at least questioned his calling. And we find this beautiful reinstatement in John 21. Where Peter goes out to fish. And the Lord orchestrates a miraculous catch of fish. Do you remember this? And was it the first or the second? It was the second. See, see, Jesus had called him into ministry in a way that Peter would uniquely see the divine hand of God. By supplying a miraculous catch of fish. And then after his mistakes and his errors and, and he came to this point of crisis which he had brought upon himself and began to question and what, whether or not God had future leadership in store for him, God reassured him by this second miraculous catch of fish. And it was as though he said, Peter, you're still my man. You're still my man. And so he reinstated him in this way. And Isaiah in chapter 50, who, Isaiah who was entrusted with a very difficult message for Israel, a message of judgment, a hard message, who received lots of consternation back from the people who didn't want to hear this, also goes back to the Lord and sort of reviews and remembers what is it that God has called him to do. And I don't have a neat and tidy way of telling you exactly how how we're supposed to do this. Um, This is soul work to do between you and the Lord uh, to rehearse your calling. I will tell you this. If you have volunteered to step forward, if you have sensed God's calling on your life to step forward in some kind of leadership capacity, you absolutely, absolutely will be attacked. It will happen. It will absolutely happen. You you have put a bullseye on yourself and you've said, Satan, come get me. Okay. Uh, You have done that. You have volunteered that. I want you to know 
And I, and I do want you to hear this as well. I want you to be able to distinguish between uh, the voice of God, the Holy Spirit, who might be convicting you of sin in your life, versus the voice of the enemy, Satan, who wants to destroy you. There's a clear way to distinguish between the two. First of all, Scripture. Bring it all back to Scripture. But, but the tendency of the conviction of the Holy Spirit is very specific. It's, it's almost surgical. It's, Eric, this thing in your life, this thing is not right. This needs to be corrected. But the enemy, the devil, who roars around like a, a lion looking for someone to devour, he attacks us holistically. He says, Eric, you're not right. You have no business doing any of this. You see the difference? The Holy Spirit convicts precisely, surgically, correctively. The devil attacks holistically. And so when this happens, you have to come back to the Lord. You have to rehearse and remember your calling. And you have to do that soul work with him as so many others have done uh, before us. Fourthly, the, the fourth thing that God asks uh, Moses to do or tells Moses to do rather, he says, come and stand before me. And with that, I'm going to understand that he wanted him to remember his empowering presence. Uh, I think what's really interesting here is the question that Israel is asking. Do you remember it? The last question of the text we looked at. Uh, is the Lord really among us? Is, is that a logical question for Israel to be asking? It's insane. It's a knucklehead question to ask. Think about this. In less than six months, they've witnessed ten plagues which freed them from slavery in answer to their prayers. They've seen a pillar of cloud and a fire in which God led them. They've seen the opening and the shutting of the sea, the miraculous sweetening of the bitter waters at Marah. And then they received food miraculously in the morning and the evening at God's hand, which he continued to do for 40 years. And the question they ask is, is God among us? It's a bonehead question. And so it's interesting to me that God calls Moses forward and says, you stand before me and I'm going to stand with you in front of this rock. And I think there's two things that we learn here. Number one, I think Moses learns this, that we are absolutely powerless without God's help. Israel was stuck in bondage and in slavery until God helped. We are powerless without God's help. Moses has nowhere to lead them and nothing to say and nothing to do unless God helps. Uh, On the other hand, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Amen? And so there's this double-edged learning here for Moses as he stands in God's empowering presence. He needs God, and God is with him. And I imagine that was very strong encouragement for him. Uh, Therefore, the wise leader is constantly in prayer and constantly seeking the Lord and asking for his help. The last thing, and I will confess to you, this is maybe the most difficult for me. He tells them, strike the rock. Well, that's not hard. Strike the rock. Uh, Okay. But but in terms of what's the lesson for this? And so I tell you this, this last point here, followed by faith, is uh, the best thing that I can do with this. Uh, This, 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 what, what God tells Moses to do, strike the rock, must seem like a weird thing. You know, I mean, he's, he's struck water before and. And, and seeing crazy things happen to that, to that, and in this case, he's going to strike the rock and see what happens here. Uh, but he follows the Lord by faith. But there's another aspect of this that's really interesting to me, and I'm not sure what to make of it. And so I'll call this the unfinished part of my sermon because I'm still learning this, and, and I don't know yet. 
I wish I had it resolved, but Sunday sometimes comes too soon. And I don't have this answered yet. Uh, But what's interesting to me in this is that um, Israel does not witness this miracle. Water comes forward from the rock. And Israel is recipients of the water. But the miracle is performed in front of whom? Look at the text. It's performed in front of Moses and the elders. He sa- it says that he did this in front of the elders. And I'm not quite sure what to make out of that. It might be, it might be that sometimes God does things for the leaders that maybe the whole audience is not privy to. It may be a lesson that at times we need to trust our leaders and understand that God uses them even if we don't completely understand. Um, but I'm not sure. And it may not be prescriptive at all. It may just describe what happened. But I do find it interesting that the elders and Moses were alone privy to the miracle that occurred. And the people received the gift of God and they were blessed by it. But it, by all appearances, it doesn't look to me like they knew exactly what had happened here. I don't know what all to make of that. If you're a leader, you will come to a point of crisis. Absolutely. If you are a leader worth your salt, genuinely taking people in a direction they need to go and trusting God for the future, you will hit a point of crisis. How will you go through it? I hope you can take some lessons from Moses here. Next week, we're going we're gonna to look at where Moses gets the correction. Here he gets encouragement. Uh, next week, he gets a good swift kick. And uh, I hope you'll come back for that too. Let's pray. Lord, I just, I thank you for your word. Uh, And sometimes it's amazing to me, here we have this document, thousands of years old. And yet it penetrates our hearts and our lives. The scriptures say it penetrates even to joints and marrow. Um, It is alive and well and it speaks to us. It speaks to every situation of life. Lord, we don't... um, We don't see everything in the scriptures that we might like to see. It doesn't tell us everything we might like to know, but it tells us enough. And I thank you that you have given your word, which is practical and instructive for us. And God, give us courage to live our lives by it, to live by this book, to let it instruct and form our lives. Lord, for those in this room who are leaders in whatever capacity you have called them to, may they have the courage to continue to lead in times of crisis to go to you and do the soul work that they need to do and to learn the lessons that you have for them. Thank you for your word and for its encouragement to us today. In Christ's name we pray, amen.